This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. Again, I give an announcement. I am uh, Zach Lutz. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you all. We're continuing our sermon series on the book of Micah. Uh, Micah's people today uh, felt a bit of, of wrongdoing. Uh, they, they felt that God had done something wrong against them. And I'm wondering if we've ever felt similarly, felt angry, hurt, or maybe even a little bit forgotten by God, that he has neglected some of his promises to us. And although they cried out to God, things were not going their way. In their perception, they continued to receive silence in answer to them crying out. And I think that we can feel the same way, even if you take a simple example, such as just like having a bad day. You know, you wake up late, kids are slow to get ready, uh, you miss that meeting, you lose that client, you get home, you lose your temper uh, with your kids and your spouse, you go to bed angry and you're like, why, God? Why did this happen this way? You are in charge of everything, right? But it also gets much more complex when it's not just one day, when it's week after week, month after month, a decade of asking God, why? What are you doing? And in those moments, I think what we see ourselves doing is accusing God. We accuse God of forgetting us. We accuse God of not remembering his promises, not remembering us. We, we look at our relationship and say, God, you have done wrong by this. Micah's audience felt the same way. We're going to talk in a second how they had armies camped around them. They were, um, you, you know, felt like God was abandoning them in many ways. Uh, and God's going to respond to them in this section of verses. And he's, he's going to respond to them and challenge them. And he says, no, 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 no. It is not I who have forgotten you. It's you that's forgotten me. He's going to ask them to remember who he is. Now, I recently rewatched the uh, 1997 not sure I can say masterpiece movie called Flubber, uh, starring Robin Williams. Robin Williams' character, we are led to believe, is some sort of a brilliant scientist. But despite his brilliance, uh, he cannot remember his wedding day. And he's forgotten it not once, not twice, but three times. And that act of failure to remember has done serious damage to his relationship with his fiancée, to the point where she breaks up with him. She's like, I can't do this anymore. When God responds to the accusations that he has forgotten, uh, and he says, no, 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 it's not I that's forgotten, but you that's forgotten, God says, you need to remember. Now, remembering is kind of an interesting concept. Um, of course, we use it with just remembering certain facts, maybe of loved ones. We might call that uh, reminiscence. Um, I remember that when that happened. Wasn't, wasn't that fun? But we also use it to insinuate some sort of action. Honey, remember that we have that meeting at the kids' school today. Uh, it's not simply that you just need to be leaving work and thinking like, oh yeah, there's this meeting at the kids' school today. It's like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be at that meeting at the kids' school today. I'm supposed to act on that uh, recollection of information. 
You see, in these instances, uh, we're being asked not only to recall the information, but also to act on it. For Robin Williams' example in Flubber, uh, his failure to not remember, to not recall that the wedding was actually today, but also not to act to be there in proper dress and in proper spirit for the day, was a failure that hurt a lot deeper than just mistaken facts or not being in the right place at the right time. It's a kind of forgetting, a failure to remember that does serious damage. This is the kind of remembering that God is calling Micah's people back to. And this is the kind of remembering. When we turn to God and we're accusing him of forgetting us, that he calls us to do as well. And so our two points are going to be that, re- that remembering has two points, recalling and also action. So these are going to be our two points today, recall and act. Um, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? God commands us to remember him and his words, and this is his word to us this morning. May we remember it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Please be seated. So we found when we accuse God, God challenges us to remember. When we're in those moments where we're wondering, how is God answering? God speaks to us through the book of Micah in one of these ways, and he challenges, challenges us to remember. Uh, and this remembering has two parts, recalling And the recalling is going to be great acts of deliverance and also acting in light of those great acts of deliverance. But first, recalling. The people in Micah's day wanted to accuse God uh, because there were armies literally surrounding their city. So they'd already seen the northern kingdom defeated. If you've been here for a while, you've heard the story again and again and again. We're just going back over history. Northern kingdom's already defeated. Sennacherib's besieging Israel. Micah himself is prophesying that Jerusalem is going to be defeated and carried away into Babylon. And it seems that all of the promises of God are falling away. And so they accuse God of wrongdoing. And when accusations are made, Uh, we often end up in court. And so here in Micah 6, we're brought into a court scene. This is not a criminal court, but a family court. And Micah himself is kind of um, the the bailiff or whatever, kind of announcing uh, who the witnesses are going to be. And he calls witnesses, and they are the mountains themselves. 
Now, this is a reference to the fact that God made covenants with his people on mountains, most famous of which being Mount Sinai. And if you remember uh, the story of Israel and Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws and speaks with his people. But it's not just about the laws. There at Mount Sinai, God made a special kind of relationship with his people. And we call that a covenantal relationship. And so the accusations actually challenged this covenantal relationship. And so God calls a witness who was there. As if God is there saying, 700 years ago, when I made these promises, these mountains were here. And they will testify who has been faithful and who has been faithless. So in verses 1 and 2, as you see these mountains in this kind of call back and forth, hear the indictment against the Lord. He's heard yours, and it is um, insubstantial. The mountains declare to God's righteousness, and so the Lord will contend with Israel. So God not only defends himself, he offers an indictment, an accusation of his own, a challenge, and he challenges them to recall their great deliverance. Verse 3 What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Answer me before these witnesses that have been here for 700 years. Have you forgotten how I released you from slavery from the Egyptians? How I had you walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and drown the most powerful army in the world? Have you forgotten the leaders that I gave you, who, though not perfect in themselves, gave you my word and my instructions? Do you recall what Balak, king of Moab, devised? See, the story about Balak and Balaam is kind of an interesting one. Um, so in verse 5, this is, a, this is that reference, he's, he's referencing a story way back in Numbers 22. And here's the story again. Um, Israel uh, is slaves. The Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. Uh, And you might have seen a cartoon movie or two about this. Uh, Moses says, let my people go. There's 10 plagues. They're they're finally sent away. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. They they cross um, the desert, and they're supposed to go to the promised land. Uh, They send in 12 spies, 10 return, and they're like, nah, this is bad news. Uh, There's giants in there. Uh, like the land is good, but there's no way we can win. And two of the spies were like, God said it's ours. We should go fight it anyway. But the majority of the people decided to go with the 10. Uh, and God says, out of punishment for this, that you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until this generation has passed away and your children will get to go into the promised land. And so while they're wandering in the wilderness outside of the promised land, um, not slaves, but still homeless, uh, there's other kings and rulers in the land. And Moab is a nation state that's one of them. And Moab, the king of Moab, Balak, sees this wandering people group and he says, this is not good for my country to have these wandering refugees around in my place. I need to go defeat them. And Balak uh, decides to uh, solicit the advice of a prophet. And so he sends like uh, esteemed emissaries and lots of money to this prophet named Balaam. Balaam's not part of the Hebrew people. He's another prophet. These emissaries arrive, uh, and they say, they they deliver the message from the king, and they say, this is what the king would like. And Balaam goes, okay, well, let me go consult uh, with my gods. And the God of the Hebrews answers him, and he says, do not go with these emissaries. And so Balaam says, God spoke to me, says, I can't go with you, sends the emissaries back. Balak, the king of Moab, gets the emissaries back and says, I'll send even more prestigious emissaries and even more money to Balaam. And so the second group arrives and Balaam goes, okay, uh, let me go beseech 
gods, and the God of Israel shows up, and he says, go with these men. Now, what's interesting is that on the journey, there seems to be some question about whether Balaam is going to resort to uh, maybe what he's always done, which is take the fee from the bidder um, and say, I'll give you the prophecy that you want. And so along his journey, he's riding on his donkey, uh, there's an angel of the Lord that stands in his path, sword drawn as if to attack. But Balaam can't see it. You know, the, the road looks empty. But the donkey swerves off the road. Now this happens in three instances, and every time Balaam gets off the donkey and just beats the donkey. The third time, the donkey opens up its mouth and speaks, like in Shrek. <laughs> but rebukes Balaam and says, what are you doing? I'm saving your life, can't you see? And God opens up Balaam's eyes and he can see the angel of the Lord and he falls flat on his face and he says, what must I do? And the idea was is that um, God sends his angel to say, don't just tell Balak what he wants to hear. You're going to tell Balak what I tell you. Don't just accept his money and give the answer. You're going to tell him that I protect these Hebrew people and that he should not go up against them. Now, why, why is God bringing up this story from 700 years ago? To his people? Why is he asking them to recall it? It's because even when God seemed silent, when they had disobeyed God, they'd accused God of wrongdoing at the gates um, when they sent in the spies, and they said, Lord, why did you bring us to this place? We would have been better off in, e in Egypt. They accused God of wrongdoing. He sent them out in punishment to the wilderness. Even there in God's silence, God was working to protect them. And the amazing thing about the story of Balaam and Balak is that no, none of the Hebrew people were involved. They had to hear the story later. Even in their experience of punishment from God, God was defending them. It's as if God is responding to Micah's people in his day. Do you remember this story? You have no idea what I do for you. You have no idea the lengths that I would go to protect you. In the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, Paul references this time period as if to say, if God can literally use donkeys to protect his people, why are we afraid of anything? See, I think when we accuse God, we're often quite afraid. Quite afraid that we have done something to merit his displeasure and we can't get it back. Afraid that these circumstances that we're in will be forever and often our fear manifests in anger, accusatory anger, especially, especially when we've been deprived of something that God says is good. When he said work is good, and we've strived really hard for that one job and been turned down, and then tried again and been turned down, and tried again and been turned down. It's disappointing for sure. God says that it's good and that we should pursue it, but God hasn't given it, and we're angry. We're afraid that it will last forever. And God's challenge in response to our accusations of injustice from him is to say, do you recall who I am? Do you recall those great acts of deliverance that I've done for you? And not only those great acts of redemption from slavery, but also those small acts that you had no idea about. Do you remember who I am? Do you recall who I am? You see, the Exodus was an unbelievable display of liberation. 
But the Exodus was only a foretaste of a greater and better deliverance. And God stands before us today in our accusations and says, can you recall that deliverance? God delivered you without your support, input, or even knowledge. You weren't there on Calvary 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave his life. You weren't there for the moment of deliverance. And yet, even there, God remembered you. And you are challenged, just like Micah's audience, the people of Micah's day, to recall these great acts of deliverance and also recall those small acts when God seems silent. He has never failed or abandoned his promises. Even when God appears silent, he's still working. You see, when you're accusing God, you're probably in the midst of unbelievable pain, anger, betrayal, and hurt. And Jesus, in the midst of the worst pain and betrayal there ever was, never forgot you. This is why Christians need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. It's not because we didn't accept it. We did. But we forget its significance, just like the people of Micah's day. We forget, the, we cannot recall those significant acts of deliverance and understand their significance in our own lives for how much God loves us. We think that God has forgotten us when the greatest display of his remembrance is right there with arms outstretched on the cross. Even there, he remembered you. Now, remembering requires recalling, um, recalling that God works in great acts of deliverance and also recalling that even when God appears silent, he's working. But this sort of remembering that God challenges us to do is not just to recall this information, but actually to act in light of it. You see, many Christians can recall that on Calvary 2,000 years ago, Jesus delivered them. They can be like, yes, Jesus died for my sins. But when we've accused God, something about that significance has faded away, and we failed to act like we should. And so God has an indictment against us. And so the question might be, how are we supposed to act? What action can we do that pleases God, that allows Him to see us and remember us, that keeps us in His graces? Should I give more money at church? Should I serve more in various capacities? Should I devote my life to the mission field? What sacrifices will God accept? I talk to a lot of Christians that want to sacrifice for God in this way. Sacrifice their money, their time, their lives. And in verses 6 and 7, we can see that Micah's people were no different. They also wanted to sacrifice. They heard the Lord's indictment against them, and they said, well, then how am I supposed to act? And they went through all the sacrifices that they could have made. Calves a year old, a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, until finally they even get to their firstborn. Recognizing, no doubt, the story of Exodus again, where the 10th plague that removed them from Egypt was the death of the firstborn whose households did not have the blood on their doorposts. They said, is that what God wants? Is that what God wants for me to be heard and remembered? When you say, why, God? What do you need to make things go my way? 
Just like in the story of Balaam and Balak, where the king, Balak, sent more silver and more gold to win the favor of the prophet, the people of Micah's day wanted to send more silver and more gold and more sacrifices to win the favor of God, to manipulate God. You see, sacrifice is a biblical idea, but we learn throughout the Old and New Testament, the reason that God doesn't accept our sacrifices is because we're trying to use them to manipulate Him. As if we could pile up all the good things that we've done for God and say, see, you owe me. Why, God? We, in Micah's audience, have failed not only to recall the facts of God's great deliverance, but we've also failed to act in a way that shows our comprehension of the depth of the relationship. Their sacrifices looked more like manipulation than love. And I think our sacrifices often look the same way. All the money we want to give, all the services that we have to offer, God, I've done all these things for you. Why do you do this to me? One commentator could say this about the people in Micah's day, about the sacrifices that they were going to make. He would say, they would give everything to God, 10,000 rivers of oil, 1,000 rams. They'd give everything to God except what he actually wanted. You see, God didn't want them to do. He wanted them to be. He wanted them to be transformed people. He wanted them to be the kind of people that loved mercy, loved kindness, and that walked humbly with their God from their very hearts. It's all in verse 8. But they couldn't give God what he actually wanted. They weren't people who loved justice, did loving kindness, and walked humbly with their God. In fact, if you remember the rest of uh, the book of Micah, you can see that they actually loved injustice. They loved being cruel, instead of walking humbly with God, they arrogantly accused him of wrongdoing. They couldn't be who they were supposed to be. And so all of their trying to do ended up being manipulation. But this isn't even really the point. Uh, God doesn't love you for what you can sacrifice to him. This sort of manipulation won't work on God. And it's because you cannot manipulate God to love you any more than he already does. One Bible teacher I know that I heard say it recently that was this way, was that Jesus did not die so that he could love you. Jesus died because he loves you. Do you see the difference? You see the difference that he didn't have to um, pile up a bunch of sacrifices, that Jesus was who he was supposed to be, that he did justice, that he loved kindness, and he walked humbly with his God by his very nature, and he would make a sacrifice, but it wouldn't be just some sacrifice of an abundance of good works. It would be a sacrifice of his very life for those who did not do those things, to purchase them, to redeem them, to remove them from one kind of slavery to another kind of slavery, just like the people from Exodus. We're going to be purchased from being slaves to death itself, where we only do injustice. We only work within our pride and our own arrogance. 
to be slaves of God where we can be transformed to be the kind of people who love justice, who show loving kindness, and who walk humbly with our God. Jesus didn't die for you so that he could love you. He died for you because he loves you. And this love changes everything. He didn't die so that you could try again with better sacrifices. It wasn't like Jesus died and then he was like, all right, now uh, for you to get the things that you want um, or else God's you know, gonna send you back out to the wilderness, uh, you have to provide an abundance of sacrifices. Uh, 10,000 rivers of oil, 1,000 uh, rams, uh, an abundance of your money, your service, uh, the mission field. No, 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 that's not what God is asking your sacrifice can't possibly merit any more of God's love because the greatest sacrifice ever was already made for you. And our recollection of this deliverance allows us to act now without believing that we're trying to manipulate God or that God owes us anything because we have been transformed into children of God with full benefits and rights meaning that we've been actually enabled to serve him by the power of the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus, to do justice, love mercy, to forgive and turn the other cheek, not to bully, but to be a peacemaker, to not insist upon our own way. It means that as you recall the great deliverance that you have in Jesus Christ, you are loosed from the chains of performance, sacrificial performance, and free to live like God's child. And in case those accusations return, God, why have you forgotten me? You need to recall that information of that great deliverance and understand that he could never possibly forget you because you cost too much. You cost more than rivers of oil. Cost more than a thousand rams. You did cost a firstborn the firstborn son of God himself. And I hope that even when you have accused God, that you'd be able to look at Jesus himself and see the greatest display of love for you that there ever was. That before you were even born, you were seen and remembered and provided for. And the one who said it and who did this action, who provided for you, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the Father heard him. And he and the Father together indwell you by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are no longer your own. You no longer belong to death, but you belong to God himself, that you are a child of the living God. How could God forget his own children? When you accuse God, Remember that you have been delivered. Recall how much he loved you and act with full dignity as a child of God. Jesus not only said we need to hear these words of deliverance proclaimed to us time and time again, but he also said we needed to feel it in baptism we need to be washed clean and experience it. He also said that we need to taste it at the table. Jesus knew how easily we would forget. <laughs> he said, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. The very night that Jesus was betrayed and accused, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. 
and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And he said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, take this blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins, for a better deliverance. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, this is a tangible sign of God's promises. And we are called to remember it. Remember it as we taste it upon our lips. To recall the great deliverance that was offered to us, but also to act appropriately in light of it. It is for those baptized Christians who know their status before God as a child of God. Even if they've accused God, who know that they can run to the feet of Jesus again and again and again. For those of you who aren't sure where they stand in relation to God, who aren't sure that you are actually his child or that Jesus accomplished the saving work that he said he did, I would ask you to refrain from this section of our service. Not to proclaim something with your actions, make a sacrificial action uh, that is not true of an inward reality. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle uh, to the two serving stations over here on the side. Uh, the server will hand you the bread. We have a gluten-free option, uh, if, if you so require. Uh, and we also have wine and grape juice. The wine is red, and the grape juice is clear. Please take according to your conscience. Uh, if you would, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we need to hear the good news of our deliverance in preaching we need to feel the good news of deliverance and baptism. We need to taste the good news of deliverance on our lips. Holy Spirit, edify us in this way by transforming these elements from common to holy, holy to accomplish your will, to remind us of the goodness of God towards us. And I ask this in Jesus' name.